0: everybody. We are streaming now live on Facebook. It is currently 11.02 Eastern Time on November 20th, 2020. And you guessed it, I'm back working from home. Um, So we're back into semi-quarantine here. So we're going to be staying safe. Today I am joined by Dr. Harry Lever. Welcome, Harry. Hi. And we are going to be talking about some pretty exciting things today. Uh, Today is a very special day to the HCM community because something very important happened. We have um, been given new guidelines for the treatment and management of HCM, which is a document that was created by the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. And you can find the link to those documents uh, directly from the HCMA website in a link here on the Facebook page. So um, we had previously um, discussed what we wanted to do today in this meeting. Sorry, my hair's in my face. Um, And we were going to address your questions and we are going to do that today. We may not have time to get to all of them because the guidelines are really important and we need to have a discussion a little bit about those guidelines this morning. And Dr. Lever and I are gonna talk about the 10 take home messages from the guidelines. And then this afternoon at 1.30, Dr. Marin and possibly Dr. Lever will be back with us to dig in deeper to the guidelines. Um, They they literally were published at 9 a.m. so we haven't really had a great deal of time with them. Um, However, Dr. Marty Marin was on the writing committee so he has a little bit more in-depth knowledge and we can pick his brain a little bit on that. And we can talk about real life implications of what these guidelines mean to us. Um, there, There are some really interesting concepts here that we really as a community need to discuss and understand better. So I'm gonna start with the very first comment and yeah, it's a, it's a glasses day, I can't see you here, but I can read with them. Um, the very first message here and Harry, we're, I could talk for like four hours on this one topic, but let's just talk about item number one, take home message shared decision-making, a dialogue between patients and their caregivers that include full disclosure of all risks and treatment options, discussion of risk and benefits for those options, and importantly, engagement of the patient to express their own goals is particularly relevant to the management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So, all right, how long does it take to inform a patient? on all of these variables so that they can make a good decision for themselves and that you can feel confident that the patient really knows what's, what's at stake? How do you feel about this statement?
1: Well, I think you know, you got to sit down and explain to people what's going on, and that takes a lot of time. You could spend an hour or so going over the whole disease and explaining things to them. It takes time. It's not just something that you take this penicillin and go home. So it takes a lot of effort.
0: I'm very happy that the physician community is making this statement that it has to be shared decision-making. What I'm a little concerned about is how informed are these individuals going to be and where are they seeking their care? Which brings us to point number two, back to the glasses. Although the primary cardiology team can initiate evaluation treatment and longitudinal care, Referral to a multidisciplinary HCM center uh, with graduated levels of expertise can be important to optimizing the care of patients with HCM. Challenging treatment decisions where reasonable alternatives exist, where the strength of recommendations is weak, i.e. a class 2B designation, we'll talk about that in a second, or is particularly nuanced, which most of our patients can relate to, and for invasive procedures that are specific to patients with HCM represent crucial opportunities to refer patients to these centers. So without saying HCMA recognized centers of excellence are the way to go for HCM, that's what they said here. And that's how I take it. um, That center of excellence care matters and now we have more validation for that. But I'm a little concerned that community-based cardiologists or smaller, newer HCM programs may take on more than they can handle when it comes to HCM. So I think it's fabulous that they're recognizing that high-volume care matters. We've seen it. It's proved out. Um, But can you talk a little bit about what a 2B indication is? And what do you think about item number two?
1: Well, I I think that with this kind of a disease, you need to be seen uh, by, by somebody who sees a lot of it. And that's, that's, that's what's really important. And, and um, you know, 2B is not a 1A, it's not all the way up there. It's not, they're not saying that you absolutely have to do it, but it's, it's, it's recommended that it be done, that you see somebody in a center of excellence that sees this disease all the time
0: so a one would be that there's a clinical trial that there's a lot of data to support that recommendation a two is smaller case studies type of information and 2a and 2b are different levels of two
1: right
0: so it has a different level of um a value if we put it that way but it's a pretty strong indication and we now we have to hope that payers understand the importance and permit maybe out of network care when in network care is not available. Right. So do you think it's a it's a good take home? Do you like it?
1: Well, I yeah, I think it's important particularly with this isn't something that that every, you know, most cardiologists that don't don't see a lot of this disease. So we need to be they need patients need to be seen by people who see it all the time and have a good feel for it. And exactly. that's and that's that's the you know and, and sometimes these insurance companies, if they realize that they would, that that would save them money in the end, that they, that they, you know, see somebody and, and then the tests don't have to be repeated as many times and they're done well and all that, that sort of stuff. So you get an accurate diagnosis.
0: Absolutely. Um, and I think the the acknowledgement that there are case management situations that are particularly nuanced, that we are not, cookie cutter, we're not all the same. Right. The needs of each patient can be very, very different and so subtly different um, that it's really hard to perceive if you don't see this a lot. So I think that's a great uh, take home. Number three is counseling uh, with patients regarding the potential for genetic transmission is one of the cornerstones of care. Screening of first degree family members with HCM, either using genetic testing or imaging surveillance protocols can begin at any age. Now this is a change. We used to say 12 or the onset of puberty and up. Now, these guidelines are talking about opening the door for younger evaluations if that is warranted in that family. So, that's really interested, uh, interesting. We're going to dig into that more uh, later. Um, and then a screening recommendation for family members hinges, hinges upon the pathogenicity and detected variants and reported a pathogenicity and confirming this every two to three years. So. What we're saying is genetic testing should be done. If you didn't get a response um, earlier, um, you you had a no gene found, you should revisit that uh, periodically and that the echo and the imaging uh, protocols should continue. And there's a little bit of confusion how it's written in the article. In some areas it's talking every one to two years and in others it says two to three years. So these are nuanced differences in how often we're screening based upon age. Um, any thoughts on the
1: screening? Ordinarily, we were screening people, you know, didn't matter too much about what their age was. Young, younger ones, we would, we would do. Many times when they're very young, you don't see much on the echo. But if you see severe hypertrophy at a very young age, less than five years old or four or whatever, that, that means the disease is very severe. And classically, we always described that you'd see it grow through puberty, puberty. puberty. But if if um, you know if you're seeing it very young, then then you're really dealing with a significant problem.
0: Absolutely. Um, So number four, and these are just the take-home messages. We're going to do deep dives later, and we'll probably spend the next couple of months tearing apart this document and talking about it in depth, but we're just going over the take-home messages today for those joining us a little late. Optimal care for patients with HCM requires cardiac imaging to confirm the diagnosis, characterize the pathophysiology for the individuals, and identify risk markers that may inform decisions regarding interventions for left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, sudden cardiac death prevention, echocardiography, I'm sorry, echocardiography continues to be the foundational imaging modality for patients with HCM. Cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging can also be helpful in patients, especially in those whom are, whom their diagnosis is uncertain, poor echo, imperfect windows or um, image windows, and there are uncertain persistence regarding decisions around implantable defibrillators. So we've been talking here for a long time that we know the, the value of cardiac MRI um, and that's what we're, they're talking about here. So ECHO still remains the mainstay for diagnosis, right. but we are opening up the door to do more MRI because we know the images from ECHO are not always as clear as we would hope that they would be because the technology is just limited. Um, any thoughts on this?
1: Well, I also think that, that uh, if you don't have good images, sometimes you need a transesophageal echocardiogram to look better at the mitral valve and the supporting structures. And I
0: do you believe that the full document does get into that detail and the nuance of yeah, when yeah, a transesophageal yeah. echo is appropriate? So that's really helpful too, because I don't think it was very clear in the previous guidelines. Right. Okay. Uh, Number five, assessment of individual patients for risk of sudden cardiac death continues to evolve as new markers emerge. Example, apical aneurysms, decreased left ventricular systolic function, excessive gadolinium enhancement. In addition to full accounting of individual risk markers, communications with patients regarding not just the presence of a risk marker, but the magnitude of their individualized risk is key. I think that's the take home sentence there. This enables the informed patient to fully participate in decision-making regarding the ICD placement, which incorporates their own level of risk tolerance and treatment goals. So those people who are told you need an ICD and they're on the fence, and they don't know what to do. Unfortunately, we've lost a few this year while they were kind of figuring it out and they didn't make it to their ICD. So we do want people to take these risk um, conversations with their physicians very, very seriously. And the guidelines clearly lay this out, but everybody needs to understand nobody's risk is zero. And you can't expect to live period to live without risk every single day of your life of something happening. But what risk are you willing to tolerate? Is it a 1% chance, a 2%, a 3%, a 4%, a 6% chance of cardiac arrest in a three to five year window? And I think that needs to be communicated and people need to understand um, that it's never zero. We do our best and I give props to Barry Marin and the work that he has done for his entire career to help identify these risk factors and to all those who came after Barry to identify new and emerging risk factors, we owe them a debt of gratitude. But we're still working to find more. Um, so what do you think about sudden cardiac risk assessment and shared decision making, Harry? Oh
1: I think, you know, I think patient has to be part of the decision, but I think that if the physician really feels and an ICD is required, it may take a hard sell and you have to, you know, you got, you know, if you really feel the patient needs it, you got to somehow really convince them that they need it. They don't want to do it.
0: Number six, risk factors. This is, this one's new and kind of, let me have your attention here. The risk factor for sudden cardiac death in children with HCM carries different weight than those observed in adult patients. Bravo for more focus in this document on pediatrics. So thank you to all the pediatric cardiologists who weighed in on that. Um, so they, they have to, I'm sorry, they, I'll go back. The risk for sudden death in children are different than an adult. They vary with age and must take account their body size, coupled with the complexity of placing ICDs in the young patient with anticipated growth and higher disease com- or device complications. The threshold for ICDs implantation in children is often different than adults. These differences are best addressed at a comprehensive HCM center with expertise in children with HCM. While you're an adult cardiologist, would you like to comment on kids and ICDs?
1: Well, I think that if I think that if you find again the disease severe enough to need an ICD at a young age. Uh, you, uh, it means that the risks are higher than you would see in some adults even. And, and I think that, uh, but it's more complicated because of the growth and, um, and you, you get into the situation where down the line, you're gonna have to change the, you, you probably can't put in one of these devices that does not have a wire that you go in directly into the heart because they're too big And so for a child, it won't work. It would be nice if they were smaller so that in a kid you could put one that wouldn't depend, wouldn't worry about the growth of the child. But so then you're left with having to put in uh, one or two wires in the heart. And if you do that, then down the line, you're probably gonna have to replace those wires because they're too small. So that makes it a little more complicated.
0: So it's, it's a good take home message that it is a critical issue that needs really comprehensive evaluation. So again, HCMA centers of excellence matter. Um, Okay, septal reduction therapies and surgical myectomies uh, and alcohol septal ablations, when performed by expert teams, HCM teams, at dedicated centers, continue to improve in safety and efficacy, such as earlier interventions. I'm sorry, let me re that one again. Septal reduction therapy, alcohol septal ablation, and myectomy, when performed at experienced HCM teams at dedicated centers, continue, continue to improve in safety and efficacy. Such as the early intervention may be possible in selected patients when drug refractory or severe outflow tract obstruction causing significant causing signs of cardiac decompensation. Given the data on the significantly improved outcomes at comprehensive HCM centers, HCMA centers. These decisions represent an optimal referral opportunity. Thank you to the writers of the document for clearly laying out that these procedures should be done at high volume, highly experienced programs where they have the best outcomes. This is going to be a point that we bring to insurers and small providers to in short, even our newer, smaller HCMA recognized centers of excellence have good relationships with high volume surgical programs so that patients get the best outcomes. Harry at the Cleveland Clinic, what do you think about high volume surgery centers?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's what we believe in. And um, um, I, I also think we, we still believe that uh, alcohol septal ablation should be reserved for people who are at too high risk to have surgery.
0: And this guidelines document actually speaks to that much more clearly than the previous. It's it lays out ages and I'm sure there's going to be some interventional cardiologists in our mix that probably aren't going to be as happy with that statement because they have their own beliefs. But it does lay out very clearly in this new document that uh, myectomy is still the gold standard um, and alcohol septal ablation should be used with those with comorbidities where surgery would be dangerous. So critical. Number eight, we're we're getting to the top 10 here, guys. Patients with HCM and persistent paroxysmal atrial fibrillation have sufficiently increased risk of stroke and oral anticoagulation should be considered. Um, Your CHAD score and other atrial fibrillation markers don't count for HCM. Just having HCM and AFib puts you at risk for stroke and thereby we're recommending or they're recommending that we use anticoagulation therapy sooner. Um, and it, when patients with HCM have, and I'm quoting again, as rapid atrial fibrillation is poorly tolerated in patients with HCM, maintenance of sinus rhythm and rate control are key uh, in this patient population. So you want to talk a little bit well, about that, that,
1: that? That's true, but you also have to see if you can do something to stop the atrial fib you know, more than drugs if it, if it seems to be recurring. And that's a, a maze procedure or a catheter ablation in the atrium to see if you can stop that. And that, that it's not as helpful, it's not as successful in patients with chocum, but I think it's uh, certainly uh, the maze procedure has been reasonably successful. And I think you need to look at that. And I think the other thing you gotta be aware of If the patient has resting or provokable outflow tract obstruction and they're having recurrent atrial fibrillation, that that may be another indication for uh, septal reduction therapy.
0: Number nine, I think they made number nine about this because nine's my lucky number and my number. So let's talk about advanced heart failure on HCM. Heart failure symptoms in patients with HCM in the absence of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction should be treated similarly to other patients with heart failure symptoms, including consideration of advanced treatment options, cardiac resynchronization therapy, so a three lead ICD pacing the left side as well, um, left ventricular assist de- devices should the cavity be large enough, um, and heart transplantation. Um, in patients with HCM with ejection fractions of 50 or lower, um, that's a significantly impaired systolic dysfunction being present and identifies individuals with poor prognosis who are at advanced risk for a sudden death. So now we're talking about the transplant pathway patients definitely getting devices to protect them from arrhythmia so that they can get to transplant. Um, this this was not really well well defined in the previous guidelines. Transplant was literally like four lines, and it wasn't clear who should get there and when. So I'm personally very happy to see this, and I know it's going to benefit a great number of patients in the community who didn't understand when they should evaluate this. Harry, you want to comment? Uh,
1: no, I I think that. Uh, you know, I think we maybe need to be looking for transplant a little earlier than, 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 you know. Although getting a transplant these days is not that easy because of you know lack of donors, and you just have to, you know. But I think you need to start thinking about it maybe a little sooner so that you get on a transplant list before you get to the very end.
0: I consider transplant a strategy game. So okay. if you know you're going to head that way, you really have to evaluate things that are beyond your control, your blood type. You know, what's going on in the world? How much time do you really need to give yourself to get that optimal opportunity? And that's a conversation for another day and another podcast. But I think it's critically important if patients see their EF going down and their symptoms getting different and worse, that they really need to have these conversations. When do I move to advanced heart failure? And when do I make those decisions? And How do I optimize the muscle that I have that's failing? Um, but I think those are critical points and I'm really happy that the guidelines are addressing them. The last one is, in my opinion, wonderful and horrible and scary and exciting and probably going to end up in court. Um, It's complicated, people. So I'm going to read it as it states in their outline. Increasingly, data affirms that there is beneficial effects of exercise on general health can be expanded extended to patients with HCM healthy recreational exercise at moderate intensity has not been associated with increased risk of ventricular arrhythmia events in recent studies live HCM thank you to all who participated whether an individual patient with HCM wishes to pursue more vigorous or rigorous exercise or training is dependent on a comprehensive shared decision between that patient and their expert in HCM care and the team regarding the potential risks of training and participation, but with understanding that exercise related risks cannot be individualized for a given patient. Ladies and gentlemen, what that just said was they're opening the door for participation in competitive athletics for those with HCM. And the devil's in the details. And there are some things that are safer than others, but we know that there's no zero risk. Nobody can really tell us yet what other risks might be there But now we're gonna get into a situation where newly diagnosed athlete really wants to participate. Doctor says, I don't know, let's go to an expert. You might even have experts disagree on whether they should or they shouldn't. And then you have the outside source of the league, the school district, the state who can make decisions whether or not you participate based on your physical And I strongly suspect that within a short period of time, we're gonna be in a courtroom, having a judge say who gets to have final say on whether an athlete competes or not. So it's great that we can have the conversations, but I do see that this is going to be an area that's gonna be complicated. And we may lose a few people who choose to take the risk to participate. And then we have to ask the question, are we dealing with adults, or are we dealing with children? And does this decision making change based on whether we're dealing with a pediatric population or a fully formed adult brain making the decision for themselves? What do you think, Harry?
1: I'm not too. I'm not too in favor of that. I guess I'm old fashioned, but i I think there are definite risks in competitive sports with people that have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and you know you can. Um, and I, I, I've just always felt that way, and I've seen a few people that have gotten into very severe trouble. And you know, I—it's all well and fine to say that you want to exercise, and there's different kinds of exercise. But you know, uh, um, I had uh, I had one individual that wanted to uh, play hockey and. Uh, came to see me to ask my opinion and we we saw this individual I sent the case around to other people and at that time everybody agreed that he shouldn't participate in professional uh, hockey and he went ahead anyhow and signed a waiver and the next thing i heard was he had to be resuscitated so it this is i understand that people are out there trying to say that they can participate but i'm not for it
0: and this is where I think it's nice to have these conversations, but I think experts are going to disagree for a long period of time based on previous experiences and tragedies. And it's it's hard to, um, it's hard to make these decisions sometimes. And I know there is a, a group of HCM experts who feel very strongly one way. And I know there's a group that feel very differently um, about these situations and it's going to evolve in time. We know that there are individuals who we've lost with no identifiable risk factors while they were being active. And we also know that a lot of people who were competitive athletes ended up dying in their sleep. So this is gonna be an issue that's going to really expand and we're gonna have to have some really tough conversations about these issues and it will all eventually evolve. I mean, 25 years ago, did we think we would have this kind of comprehensive document? No. We didn't have anything. So we've developed this over a quarter of a century. This is a quarter of a century plus of work. Actually more than that, it's, it's a half a century because it's like 60 years since HCM was diagnosed for the first time. So we're, we're learning and we're evolving and we're gonna have to have tough conversations and we're all not gonna agree all the time. And that's okay, because that's how we get to evolution and that's how we get to better decisions. So at this point, I'm going to pivot the conversation to address some of the questions that were posed on the Facebook group um, over the last week uh, because I wasn't quite sure what we wanted to talk about today. And it turns out it's the most important day to talk about HCM because we have some new data. So um, I'm going to go back to some other questions. And one of them is, um, I think we talked about this somewhat recently, but people seem to be kind of fixated on this one right now. And that is the question of a left bundle branch block and a right bundle branch block and, what is the meaning of bundle branch blocks that naturally occur? And what does it mean when you have a procedure-induced block? And what are the long-term ramifications of these electrical instabilities or abnormalities in the heart?
1: Well, if the, 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 left, the bundles are a tissue that carry the, electrical, uh, the electricity through the heart, the right bundle is for the right ventricle and the left bundle is for the left ventricle, and um, so there are people who can be born with incomplete right bundle branch block or complete right bundle branch block, and they never get into trouble. Uh, they, you can also see some people with left bundle branch block. It usually indicates that, but not always, that there is other, that there's underlying heart disease, and you just have to look at the patient carefully and try to see if you can find anything. Sometimes you don't. But the problem that happens in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is if you come in with a right bundle branch block and you need, an inv- if you need a surgical procedure, the surgical procedure, the septomyectomy takes out the left bundle. So you've got the right bundle to start with. We take out the left bundle. That means you're gonna need a pacemaker when, when you, after, that, after that surgical procedure then you got to say to yourself, well, if we're going to put in a pacemaker, is there any risk for sudden death? And then you got to decide if you're going to put in a, an ICD that will pace the patient if they need it, because you will go into complete heart block, that is no electrical activity, after we do a septomyectomy on you and you've got a right bundle. If you've got the left bundle to start with, well, you still will have the right bundle, and that becomes, that. And under those circumstances, you probably don't need a pacemaker. But let's suppose you get an alcohol septal ablation first. The alcohol usually takes out the right bundle. And then if the if the alcohol ablation doesn't work, you, you need a septomyectomy, then you're taking out the left bundle. So under that circumstance, when you have two procedures, a right, uh, an alcohol ablation, and then a septomyectomy, then you're going to need a you know, an electrical device, whether pacemaker or ICD.
0: We recently had that situation occur. Well, the gentleman had his alcohol ablation maybe a decade or so ago and then needed a myectomy, and his device became close to end of life, and it turned into an urgent situation because it's COVID times. He wanted to fly to a center to have his device replaced, but it was Imminently going to fail. It, the battery depleted really fast, so we had to help him get to another center where he could get his ICD or his uh, pacemaker replaced urgently. And we had we had like a 72-hour window to get it done. So you know, it's really important if you're pacemaker dependent that you keep up on your battery life and you don't let it get to 48, 72 hours within like trouble. Um, I've never seen warnings come across like this on a device before. <laughs> like it was bad. Um, so we need to make sure that if you do need pacing because you have a complete heart block, that that actually occurs. Um, I also would say that most people with a naturally occurring right or left bundle don't necessarily have symptoms related to that. Right, it's just there. Um, I'm not necessarily sure it doesn't lead to some disease progression or a marker of certain disease progression, I had a naturally occurring right bundle branch block that was intermittent and then I twisted to an, an intermittent left bundle branch block at the end of my old heart's life. So I think the scarring in the septum was just taking over the conduction system and well, I got a new one anyway, so it doesn't matter. now. So I hope that answers the questions on bundle branch blocks. Um, one of the other questions that we had was what actually causes shortness of breath in both obstructive and non-obstructive patients? And how does that maybe differ?
1: Well, uh, in uh, obstructive patients, uh, you, have, uh, you can have decreased cardiac output and because of, you have blockage of forward flow out of the heart, and at the same time you can have leakage backwards into the left atrium. So you're getting leakage of the mitral valve. So you get leakage and then outflow obstruction. So both of those things cause decrease in cardiac output and make a shorter breath. With non-obstruction, uh, it's just that the, the ejection fraction may be reduced or uh, you can have what we call diastolic dysfunction where the, where the uh, pressure in the heart is increased that is transmitted back to the lungs and that raises the pressure in the lungs and makes oxygen transfer more difficult. So you'll be short of breath from that.
0: Okay. Um, So there's a couple of questions that are kind of related to end stage HCM that I wanted to address. Um, We spend an awful lot of time talking about obstruction here. Um, And while many of you are facing issues with obstruction, there's a number of you who have non-obstructive HCM and for which, you know, surgery is not an option. So, um, or is, is a controversial or, nah, that's wrong word, um, a newer assessment. So we're talking about apical myectomy potentials. So I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, if you have apical HCM or non-obstructive um, asymmetric septal hypertrophy, uh, meaning that the, the thickness can be in different regions of the heart, Um, possibly the apex, possibly elsewhere. What should patients do to manage that? And when should somebody consider an advanced heart failure workup?
1: Well, I mean, uh, with um, apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or mid-cavitary hypertrophy, where you get mid-cavitary obstruction, we are starting to operate on some of these patients because we feel that the cavity size is so small that they can't hold enough blood to have enough cardiac output when they do an activity. So that if we are able to make that cavities larger, some of those patients actually do better. And it's, it's a, it was something we never used to consider, but now we're tending to do it. Um, you know, not often, but we're, we're doing it and it, it does help people. And again, it just comes down to cavity size and and, uh, and that, that would be something we would try before considering a transplant.
0: So this gets into a really complicated area. And I've seen a few of these happen now where somebody's kind of at the end of their therapeutic road and they're like, okay, I'll try surgery. I'll try an apicomiectomy, I'll try a mid cavity. And they go ahead and they, they do it and symptomatically they're no better. And now they're looking at, okay, there's nothing else I can do. They're looking at a transplant. And I have to open the chest twice in a short period of time, which has its risks as well. So I'm, I'm hoping that over the next couple of years, we can learn more about which of these anatomies are more appropriate for surgery and which are more appropriate to just move on to the transplant pathway to minimize the risk of a second chest opening for, for a transplant. You think that's a reasonable expectation? Well,
1: I mean, I just think we don't, it's always hard to predict how somebody's gonna do with um, with um, mid, mid-cavitary ones. I, I think mid-cavitary ones might might be easier to deal with than a, than an apical one. But I, you know, it's again, it's not we don't have a lot of data, but mid-cavitary ones frequently act like if you have a mitral valve, systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. So I think those can be, and we've done some again, and the patients are doing better.
0: Okay, so I do wanna talk a little bit more globally on um, when is it time to consider uh, surgery? And now with these new guidelines, the ball may have officially moved a little bit more. Um, I know that Cleveland Clinic has always had a pretty low threshold for when it's okay to consider surgery because you've seen, you've got an excellent surgeon. You, you've seen great outcomes and the risks are relatively low at your center but now we have the guidelines saying we can maybe move to surgery a little bit sooner so I, I think some people who have been on the fence should I shouldn't die are going to be it's going to be explained to them that high volume matters and if high volume matters then we can definitely move ahead towards considering surgery what's your threshold for surgery
1: well uh, again if people are, um, they're short of breath or they're having chest pain uh, and they can't do what they want to do, then we operate. Uh, if they have uh, a new indication for me has been atrial fibrillation. If you, if you have resting or provocable obstruction and you're starting to develop episodes of atrial fibrillation, that means the heart's under strain. That means that the, 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 mitral, the, the left atrium is enlarging and And before you get into too much trouble with the atrial fibrillation and form clots and all that kind of stuff, we've gone ahead um, after the first episode of atrial fibrillation and recommended surgery. And then we would do a maze procedure and at the same time might put a a tie off the left atrial appendage so you don't form a clot. And that way the the heart size and the scarring in the left atrium doesn't advance as quickly. And that way you have a better chance of preventing the atrial fibrillation long-term. So that's, that's, that's one of the, you know, and clearly if you, one of the things, <clears throat> I've seen a number of these cases where people pass out and I've seen them coming in to see us, they've passed out, they've had the ICD and they're still dizzy and passing out. And that's usually the result of obstruction, whether it's resting or provocable. So when somebody passes out, before you put that ICD and you want to make sure that they're probably passing out because of obstruction and you don't want to just put the ICD in when somebody has obstruction uh, and think they're going to be fine because they may continue to pass out. But first episode, you know, first episode of passing out and they have provocable obstruction or resting obstruction, we're operating. I'm not, we're not going to let them go on very long.
0: So I will pivot the question, and then we're going to move on to a couple COVID-related issues. Um, what about atrial fibrillation in the presence of apical hypertrophy?
1: Well, you, you might try to, uh, depending on what it looks like. Uh, you know, if you can open up the apex a bit. At the clinic, we are we're operating on people from above. We're going going through the aortic valve and doing that myectomy that way. The Mayo Group is opening the apex we haven't done that we think that might make bit more of a risk to people so we're going from above and uh and then at the same time do that maze procedure in the operating room and try to prevent the atrial fibrillation
0: i'll pivot to one other question that was uh, posed this week and guys i'm sorry we didn't have chance to get to every single question that you posted i will keep them in the archives and i'm sure in, in coming podcasts we will address many of those issues Um, but we've got a very busy day and we're gonna keep this one to an hour and we'll be back at 1.30 to discuss the guidelines in greater detail. Um, But can you talk a little bit about robotic surgery for HCM and what we know and what we don't know and what, I know you're doing a little bit of work in this at the Cleveland Clinic. We're
1: we're doing, we've done just a few, I'm not sure how many we've done, not too many, but it's typically, uh, when the, we're doing more when the mitral valve is involved and maybe not so much hypertrophy similar to a, the way we repair mitral valves now that don't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy so that there's not a lot of work that needs to be done you know if it's shortening a leaflet or doing something with a chordal structure that may be able to be done robotically but uh, we still haven't done a lot of them but it, it is interesting to think about over time that you know, if we could avoid opening the chest completely, that would, that'd be a big deal.
0: Yeah, there, I know there's, um, an independent operator, not assigned to, you know, not working within an HCMA recognized center of excellence, or not even working in an HCM team who has been doing a bit of robotic surgery. And I'm a little concerned about, um, the salesmanship associated therein. So I I really think that the critical decision-making and the guidelines document comes out and supports this high volume and a team matter. So please don't think to go for the easy way because somebody sold you something. Please go to a comprehensive HCM team to evaluate your opportunities and your options, specifically for robotic surgery. There might be some options available for a select few. One thing that is very clear from this document and where we are today in HCM care is we're stacking our toolbox with a lot of, a lot of options now. Um, 25, 30 years ago, we had very limited options. And over the decades, we've been adding knowledge to our toolbox. We've been adding therapeutic options in terms of different utilization of different pharmaceuticals and different procedures, catheter-based and surgical and enhancing those procedures and getting better. Um, This is an evolution that will take more time to to get to more answers. So um, I'm really happy that we're moving forward, but we still have have things to figure out and you can only do that collectively. So now it is again, November 20th, 2020. So if you're watching this sometime in the future and the, Issues related to COVID are nothing but bad memories. Congratulations, you made it that far. But if you're here with us today, live, you're living through a very high second peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who showed extensive vigilance um, in the first wave, um, I think because we were all very, very alert, I think some people may have let their guard down and we're seeing um, a big uptick in the HCM community coming in with COVID positive uh, results. And I don't blame anybody for for coming in contact with COVID. It's not meant that way, but I think we all kind of let our guard down for a while and started to go out in the public without our masks all the time and didn't wash our hands quite as frequently and didn't distance as much. And we're coming into the holidays where there's a lot of controversy about how we're gonna hold our holidays. Um, The uptick in the HCM community is concerning to me. Um, We've had a couple people have some really nasty bouts of COVID and it's really hard on the HCM heart. Harry, um, should patients arm themselves now with home assessment devices, cardio mobile devices for EKGs, pulse oximeters, um, Apple Watches? What should we be doing at, HC, at home in an HCM family to prepare?
1: I think you ought to have the oxygen device. And I think it doesn't hurt to have uh, 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 you know, a live core, for instance, that works with a cell phone. Now, there are some, there, there are advantages and disadvantages of the Apple Watch and the alive core device. One problem with the Apple Watch is uh, it only records 30 seconds. Now, uh, sometimes you need a little bit longer, uh, but the advantage of the Apple Watch is it's right there. You just hit it and it'll record, and then you can send the email. Uh, The Alive Core, you can record 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, three minutes, and sometimes you need that little bit of a longer time to do it. So it's kind of a, you know, benefits and risks of both, but I, you know, and the, uh, the, the other problem is with the, the alive core, you may not have it right with you. And yet the Apple watch is always with you. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag and I don't have an absolute best answer, but having one or the other is probably helpful. And I think that the other thing is you've got to wear a mask. Now we've, uh, from personally, Uh, What we've used at home is uh, an N95 mask, and uh, you can use a surgical mask. The, uh, The N95 may be a little better, although there's been some question about how you fit it, but the ones we were able to get seem to fit all right. You make them tight enough around your nose, you'll be all right. But the other thing that we've used is a visor, and the visor plus the mask. And I think that that's what I've been recommending to people. My wife uses it all the time, and, and you know, uh, when she started using it, not many people were, were using them, but now more seem to be, and they're not very expensive and get them for a dollar or two. And I think the, the visor plus the mask gives you a lot of protection. And that way it protects your eyes and, it, you know, and, and all that stuff. And I think I really
0: haven't heard anybody talk about your eyes
1: for disease transmission but that's what that's what some people have said actually it can go that way you
0: can maybe get into your glasses and 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 shields
1: and at the clinic they're they've recommended that the people working there either use a visor or goggles and the clinic is now coming out with a with another with another 99 hospitals a public service announcement it's going to say just wear a mask and it's a minute long and it's it's it says something like, if we're here to take care of, if we're risking our lives to take care of you, then you um, you help us out and wear a mask.
0: I'm going to say that there's probably another piece of equipment that all HCM families should have at home. And that's a home blood pressure uh, yeah. issue.
1: Right. They're
0: like 30 bucks at you know Amazon, your local pharmacy, you can pick them up. So by having a blood pressure path that's going to check your heart rate and your blood pressure and a pulse ox, and you're using the old name of CardioMobile. A live core is Cardiomobile So that device, that having those three things at home will help you communicate with your HCM team to determine when and if you need to go to the hospital for care for COVID. If you can manage at home, that's great. That's really where everybody wants to be when they're not feeling well. So we want to make sure that you are prepared with all of the tools that you need to take care of yourself at home. I would also think it'd be a great idea to stock up on some electrolyte drinks so you can keep yourself hydrated because that's really important. And talk to your team about what supplements might be helpful in COVID for you, high dose vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc—these are things that have been talked about in the public media that might be beneficial to helping you fight oh, off COVID.
1: We're really sure? We're not that sure about it. That's not.
0: And that's why people should discuss their own cases with their own individual physicians on that, because it's controversial data. We're all still learning about COVID, much like we're learning about HCM in an evolution, and it takes time to get there. So um, we've got that. We've got just a couple more minutes that I'm going to um, leave for any questions uh, on Facebook. A couple of people have posted some things. I do wanna kind of get back to a few of them. Um, I think it's Margie, hold on one second. Uh, I'm sorry, Maggie. Maggie, you put a comment that you, your sister was genetically tested and it was inconclusive and you did ancestry DNA. That does not work. You can't use a direct-to-consumer genetic test like the one we're offering for free to members of the HCMA on the 23andMe platform. That's not an HCM genetic test. That is, for lack of better terms, the way I like to look at it, fun genetic testing, ancestry genetic testing, interesting information, but not diagnostic. If you are interested in getting screened for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Invite is still offering its free service. You can go to the HCMA website, for hcmorg go directly to the uh, link for the Invitae program, and you can just go through the process and you can get genetic testing if you're in an HCM family and you know that there's a diagnosis in the family whether you have previous genetic testing or not. So direct to consumer genetic testing is not how you genetically test for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You will not get the answer the FDA will not permit it. Um, so we've got that situation. Somebody asked why we don't do surgery for everybody and just get rid of it. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy infiltrates the entire heart muscle. You can't just cut out the scar tissue or the bad DNA, the heart is affected. The entire organ is affected. The valves are misshapen in many cases. You can't just cut it out. It's part of it. And once you've had surgery to relieve obstruction, you still have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You are now just a non-obstructed HCM. So that's critical to know. Somebody said, can you just get on a list for a new heart? You don't just get on a list to get a heart because you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You get on a list when your survival is not going to last and your symptoms and your heart function um, equal. You're sick enough to get listed, but you're well enough to receive the organ and, and survive the very brutal aftermath of heart transplantation. Uh, so it's, it's a balancing act. There are only approximately 3,000 heart transplants done a year in the United States. There are approximately a million patients who have diagnosable hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We only represent approximately 4% of all heart transplants that are done. So you can see how rare it is to actually go down that pathway. Okay. Um, Harry, anything else you want to comment about on COVID
1: or The guidelines? Just, I would just, um, in terms of COVID, I would try to stay home and not go out very much. I mean, the the numbers are raging. We here in in our county here in Ohio, they put in a voluntary thing where they're recommending people stay home. Uh, They're now starting to again, reclose the schools. Uh, And I think that uh, this thing is totally out of control. And you've gotta be very careful that you don't go out more than that, it's absolutely necessary. The CDC has come out and recommended that you should not travel for Thanksgiving, even doing a test because you can have a negative test and the next day be exposed to somebody and have it. You certainly don't wanna fly on an airplane and uh, just do Zoom calls for the Thanksgiving. We've That's what we're doing and uh, it's, um, Right now, until we get a vaccine, uh, I think that um, uh, you've got to be extraordinarily careful. And one of the problems we're facing is the hospitals are getting overfilled and we're, staff are getting sick. And that means we're not going to have enough people to take care of people. And so we want to minimize the, the risks. And we've got to, um, it looks like the vaccines are going to be helpful. We've got to get organized in how to give it. And certain people need to cooperate and and help out at certain levels of our government that aren't doing it now. And uh, this has to stop. We're talking about people's lives and we've got to work. Everybody needs to work together no matter whether you're Democrat or Republican in getting this thing moving. And it's totally inexcusable what's going on right now. And we've got to get it going. It seems like this is new technology for the vaccine. It it sounds like it's going to be really good. We've got to be very careful. And, you know, I mean, they're going to start giving it to the healthcare workers because they're the most exposed. And then we're going to have to follow everybody carefully and see how long the antibodies last and how often we get the shots. But once we know that, you know, that'll even be better. We don't know whether we're gonna need one every six months or once a year or once every five years, all that has to be learned. But right now what we gotta do is keep our cool, not put out the risks and make people more sick because it's the the more you got out there, the more you're gonna get. And you've gotta be very, very careful right now.
0: It is certainly a scary time. Um, I know stress levels and anxiety levels are increasing. And to our community, we have some new guidance. It might help you make some decisions on things that you want to do for your own healthcare, but you may find yourself a little conflicted right now. You know, you might get a little bit of more insight on things that you might want to do or want to pursue, but then you're going to really need to work very carefully with your center during this winter to determine is now the right time for you to do something or do you wanna wait until we have a break in this in this surge and come in the spring and, and make these decisions and, and follow through in the spring on the, on the options that you may wanna to, to look at. So um, I will offer this last bit of info and then we'll close for this session and we'll come back at 1.30. Um, we are about to launch our online support group system And I think now more than ever, it's critical that those with chronic disease such as HCM have this opportunity to be together on a regular basis. Um, As of right now, when we go and we do something, we're doing it big, (laughs) um, there will be at minimum five support group meetings per week, probably more like seven or eight, depending upon the week, where you will be able to communicate with Others with HCM are wonderful support group leaders who you're all gonna start to meet very soon and learn about their bios and their point of view. We have former police officers, we have authors, we have kindergarten teachers, we have um, um, uh, reporters as as support group leaders who have HCM themselves. Um, We're gonna be dealing with complex issues such as multiple comorbidities, meaning you have multiple diseases there's going to be a group for you guys there's going to be a group for the newly diagnosed chaired by yours truly and a pre-myectomy meeting every month so if you're going down the myectomy path you can join us every month and and hear about this these rooms are going to be limited to 25 participants per room per meeting so it's important that you sign up but it's more important that you show up if you sign up and save your space and don't come in that means somebody else couldn't go so please sign up, as there's more demand, we will add on more rooms so, um, and more, more sessions. There'll be afternoon, early evening, and later evening um, on all US time zones. So we're, we're trying to be there for you. I think through COVID times and these new guidelines that put more and more pressure and anxiety on the patient community in that shared decision-making concept. It sounds great in theory, but it's a lot of burden for HCM families to try to handle. So we're gonna be there with you and for you to help you make these decisions and make sure that you've got the support that you need as a community. So Harry, thank you so much again for your time today and all that you give to the HCM community. We are eternally indebted to you for your service to the community. And thank thank you, thank you, thank you. And to everybody who's watching, please stay safe. Please wear a mask. Please wash your hands often. Please use Purell. Please wear a mask. Please don't gather in groups of those outside of your family to any large extent. Keep them to groups of under 10 and keep distance. If you are having family over for Thanksgiving, a great guidance is to keep the doors and windows open and allow flow of air through the house, crank up the heat if you need to, it's one day, but let that air flow through the house because that will aid in the dispersion of anything that might be in the room that you don't see or don't think is there. So keep your windows and your doors open, stay distance. stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back at you at one o'clock. Thank you for your time today and um, we will try to get to the rest of your questions in a future broadcast. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4HCM.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4HCM.org or visit us online at our website 4HCM.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invite, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite. Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added. Check the updated registration information at 4HCM.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.